morning and welcome. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. And on behalf of FMEP, I am very happy to welcome you to today's discussion entitled, Make Them Laugh, Comedy and the Fight for Palestinian Rights. So comedy, as we all know, has long played a powerful role in shaping how people think about politics and the world around them and challenging them to question their own assumptions and the political status quo. And the question here today is, can it play the same role or does it play the same role in the fight for Palestinian rights? To dig into that question, I am thrilled to be joined today by three brilliant women. Uh, first off, we have the world famous Palestinian American actress, political commentator, disability rights advocate and Palestinian rights activist, Mason Zayed. Um, thank you. We have Israeli former UN staffer turned comedian, Noam Schuster, who is the subject of a recently released short film by Al Jazeera entitled Reckoning with Laughter. And last, we have my dear friend and colleague and recently joined board member of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, Rebecca Abu Shadid, who is going to co-lead today's discussion with me. Uh, Rebecca, why don't you lead things off? Thank you, Laura, and thanks to all of our viewers today. Um, before we dig deeper into the questions about comedy and politics, we'd love to hear a little bit about your stories. What made you decide to become a comedian? Did you decide? Uh, how does Palestine and Israel fit into your comedy? What do you hope to accomplish through your comedy? Who's your target audience? How did you get to where you are today? Mason, do you wanna start off? All of that, I'm so All ready, yes. <laughs> So I just want to start off by saying how happy I am that Rebecca Abushadid is one of my questioners because she's one of my best friends in the entire world and we never get to hang out. So I'm super excited to be interrogated by her. So um, I was born and raised in the great state of New Jersey, spent every summer being oppressed in Palestine with my grandparents. So it was a very like strange dichotomy between like being on the Jersey shore and living in a war. Um, and growing up in the United States, I had one dream and one dream only. I wanted to be on a daytime soap opera called General Hospital. But when I turned on TV, I just didn't see people who looked like me because not only am I a multiple minority, a woman, Muslim, a BIPOC, um, but I also have a disability, I have cerebral palsy. And the reality is American television really just shuns people with disabilities. So where I saw people who looked like me, where I saw myself was in the world was in the world of stand-up comedy. Specifically when I saw a comedian named Richard Pryor. He was a black comic who was also disabled later in life. He also shook just like I shake. He was a wheelchair user. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll become a comedian and then I'll get on General Hospital. So in 2001, I became a comedian nine months before 9-11. So nine months into my stand-up comedy career, 9-11 happened. And then suddenly I went from making like Jesus jokes and period jokes to having to make jokes that fought back against the negative images of Arabs and Muslims in comedy while straddling that oh so important line of always being entertaining first, always being funny first. I never wanted to become a preacher. So I knew the power that my comedy wielded, but I didn't want to become someone who only used their comedy for good. You know, I'm a mean girl at heart. I just want people to laugh. But 9-11 forced me to become an advocate. At the 
same time, the second intifada had broken out in Palestine. And Palestine really made a grand entrance into my stand-up comedy. When I was visiting in 2002, I was running a program for disabled and wounded refugee children, trying to mainstream them into the school systems. And people were like, yo, you look like Ebola. Like, maybe you have money. How do you make money? Disabled people are usually poor. And I was like, I'm a comic. And they're like, what? And I'm like, I tell jokes. And they're like, People pay you to tell jokes. I'm like, yeah. So I did a stand-up comedy show in Palestine, one in Beirut and one in Amman. And they say that I'm the first to ever do it in Palestine or Jordan because apparently Arabs were really good at doing like characters and making fun of others, but like self-deprecating comedy was new. So I like to think that I pioneered stand-up in Palestine, but I don't know, maybe there was a chick on the corner in Ramallah doing open mics in the 1950s that I don't know about. Um, and one of the most difficult, before I pass it to know, because there were so many parts to that question, but one of the moments that Palestine really entered my work was in January of 2006. They were bombing literally the life out of Gaza. Like 500 people died in one day. I had to go on stage. And I was like, how am I gonna go on stage and tell jokes when people are literally being massacred? And I went on stage and I told the joke about catching my husband in Gaza. And I said, I went to catch my husband in Gaza. Why Gaza? Because they have no place to run. And what I was saying to the audience was these people are trapped. There is no escape. There is no other place to go. And that's when I realized like I had the responsibility of always talking about Palestine in my materials. And since day one, my intro has always included that I'm Palestinian. I have a lot of people tell me, say Arab instead of Palestinian. It's like saying Al Qaeda. And I always make sure I say I'm a Palestinian, Muslim with cerebral palsy, divorced, disabled, like all the other things. But I always list Palestine in that intro because so few people know that we are a people. Mason, thank you. I there, you answered many questions <laughs> and raised many more. Um, Noam, tell us about your story. Well, first of all, I'm I'm so excited, Maisun. I mean, besides the fact that we've met in Palestine in the past, and I love you personally, I also adore you as a comedian, and you have a part in me starting to write jokes. Like I have. I, I finally get to say to you in your face via Zoom, because when I met my soon in Palestine, I was a UN employee. I was, you know, uh, working in, I had a path I was going towards, which was, you know, hardcore politics and activism. I was doing this uh, under the radar um, uh, countering extremism in Israeli society. Spoiler, I failed <laughs> uh, through the UN. And I, 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 I had to hide my dreams uh, in some uh, closet, uh, my, my original dreams, which were performing in the stage and being funny and writing jokes and doing what I'm doing now, which is you know, uh, my dream. I grew up very, very differently from other Jewish girls, from other Israeli girls. I was born and raised actually with Palestinians uh, in, in the only community where Palestinians and Jews live together by choice. 
It's called Wahat Salam in Arabic, Neve Shalom in Hebrew, and the Oasis of Peace in English. I grew up uh, learning Arabic, studying about the Palestinian narrative, uh, totally exposed to the other side. And that messed up my life. I still ask my parents, couldn't you just raise me? <laughs> in the just, but I grew up in a very political household. My first memories are of my dad actually sitting in prison in the first intifada for refusing to serve in the occupied Palestinian territories. And so I grew up in a very political household and my parents took their uh, wanting, you know, to uh, live an alternative to the next level where they raised me and my brother in this community. And on top of that, I'm, uh, my Jewish background is mixed. Uh, so my mother was born in Iran. So I'm half Mizrahi, which is Middle, Middle, East, Middle Eastern Jew, and half Ashkenazi, which is my Schuster side. So my dad is like blonde, green eyes, Romanian Jew. He looks like, like a Swedish sperm donor next to me. And I look just like my mom. And my mom has this huge Persian Jewish family eight brothers and sisters. One of my aunties is really racist. She calls them the Muslim Brotherhood. Like, so I grew up where like most of my Palestinian friends look like Gigi Hadid and I look like Ahmadinejad next to them. And we're like, and when we cross checkpoints, usually the soldiers stop me and they ask me for my ID and they ask for the phone numbers of my hot Gigi Hadid Palestinian friends. Like that's the premise of the confusing identities that I live because the peace camp or the people associated with being pro-Palestinian or being in the like liberal, whatever, they're predominantly um, Ashkenazi European looking Jews. So I was this like confused, confusing Arabic speaking Jewish Arab looking girl that grew up in this mixed community and embodying all these contradicting uh, identities. And throughout my life, I was always a stage person. I was always in front of an audience. I studied theater together with international relations. And I really thought that I'm going towards like a political career. And then <laughs> not only was I fired from the UN because I did such a marvelous job in countering extremism in Israeli society, <laughs> I saw that people are not listening to politicians anymore. And I saw that the Ukrainian president is a Jewish comedian that, is a, that ended up being elected to become the president of Ukraine. So I was like, maybe if I start telling jokes, people will take me more seriously. And um, I, 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 remember, I remember that moment where I had this serious Skype with my bosses from the UN and they told me you have 30 days to shut down everything that you're doing and I knew that I don't want to replace the um, my mission and how I want to express myself and how I want my identities and my languages and everything that I'm doing to affect and influence the hearts and minds of people without the boundaries of a, poly uh, of, of a political framework or uh, organizations that limited me in the past. I wanted to be on stage have the freedom to say whatever I want. And I ended up being the first Jewish comedian uh, invited to do comedy in a Palestinian comedy festival. I promised the audience that I'm staying on stage for seven minutes, not 73 years. And I 
I, I'm using my languages, I'm using my identity, I'm using my height, my body. I mean, my, my son can teach us how to, how as women on stage, we use every bits and pieces of who we are um, to retell uh, our stories, to, if I wanted to become the alternative that I believe I want to model for the future, is being a Middle Eastern, strong Jewish woman who speaks Arabic, not for intelligence purposes, and is pro-Palestinian and fighting for human rights and full justice and equality on stage, on stage through comedy, through every, through uh, in, in front of every audience, and it's been a crazy, crazy journey so far. I just want to jump in and say, when I met Noam, I really challenged her. I challenged her on both the fact that she was a Jewish woman entering a Palestinian space and the fact that she wanted to become a comic. So. I'm so proud of where you've come in the past, you know, five years since, since, since I first met you, because I really, really did challenge you. And I'm, I'm happy to see that you have um, kept your commitment to both of those things. So mashallah. Habibti, my son, it's, you've been really a role model because you, having this like heavy, serious suitcase of the UN and sitting in your comedy show and and saying like, we, we, we need to take the mic. We need to be, yeah. you know, upfront and not be in those um, very limiting uh, spaces. And th this tool comedy and the grabbing the mic and taking the stage is just, <laughs> yeah. Oh. I want to follow up on that point exactly. And I want to sort of pull the, the camera back a little bit from focusing just on Israel Palestine. You want me to move my camera? I have a perfect shot. No. no. Seriously, Frank. No. <laughs> so, but I, I mean, both of you have referenced the power of comedy. And I want you to, to muse on that for a moment. Um, Noam, you said something just now that you realized that the politicians, you know, people weren't listening to them. It wasn't working. You know, diplomacy has been trying and failing for decades now on the Palestine cause. So what is it about comedy that, that is different? How, how, how does comedy, you know, having lived in the US, having lived through the, the, the sort of daily show era or the daily show generation where we saw political satire become probably the most powerful vehicle for education and, and challenging status quo in the US that, that existed far stronger than a White House press conference or like, you know, a news show, a regular news show. So what is it about comedy, about grabbing the mic that is so, that is so powerful? And, and how can that work on, on the Palestine cause? Noam, why don't you start this time? Okay, so it's a great question. Because, and, and again, my, uh, my experience has been so crazy from just a few years that I've started doing this. One of the one of the first examples where I understood that I'm reaching more people with comedy than I ever reached or would have reached with uh, straight up activism and diplomacy was when Israel started warming up relations with the Gulf countries, with Saudi, with you know, other Gulf countries leading up to the recent uh, normalization agreement. I made a joke about that and it was maybe some of uh, those that are watching us uh, remember this, but I made a joke about that. There was a pretty stupid joke, but I was challenging this warming up of uh, you know relations between Israel and the Gulf countries. I told my I told myself, 
we're seriously going in for like normalizing relationship with Gulf countries and the UAE when literally none the, the governments are doing zero with you know solving what is most urgent to be solved right here with the Palestinians. So I made a stupid joke on TV in Arabic where I proposed marriage to, to MBS to Mohammed bin Salman and I made up that I'm starting a party and I'm running for elections. This was like 256 uh, elections ago and And, the, and that topic was so sensitive, was so relevant. And I didn't realize that I'm touching such a sensitive topic. That the day after I made that joke in some very like not so viewed uh, spot in a show in Arabic that I was on, uh, it went viral all over the Arab media <laughs> and all over the Middle East. And the headline was, a uh, Zionist party leader proposes marriage to Mohammed bin Salman. <laughs> and my face was uh, next to his face. And, and, um, and, and the point being, this wasn't a great joke at all. It wasn't, I, I, don't, I don't even find it funny. But the fact that this just showed how hypocrite and how crazy it is that Israel and some you know and is, is suddenly speaking and can be okay with some dictators as long as it serves the interest of the worst instead of solving the real problems that we have that we have to address and it reached so many people in the day after also it um, it made headlines in iran saying uh, iranian jewish comedian made a joke arabs didn't get the joke <laughs> And I was like, which conflict am I on between Iranians and Arabs or Jews and Arabs? And, <laughs> and, 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 and it was like a, it was an explosion where I realized for the first time the power of challenging something through. I didn't, if I was still at the UN at this time, I would have had to be polite and do an analysis and not piss off the Saudis and maybe say something nice about this and wrap it in. No, <laughs> the, uh, this, this Jewish Israeli comedian is going to propose to you on live TV if you're, you know, if you're doing these uh, uh, poor political choices. Um, yeah, so that's, so that's, I think it's limitless and you're, Uh, you have your you have yourself and you can and you can express and you don't owe anyone anything so what I say to everyone on stage is if your audience is laughing they are less likely to kill you they mm -hmm. may still do it but they're less likely to and again as someone who's a multiple minority I've found that comedy is a much better easier language, vehicle, viewpoint, and lens to talk about extremely diff difficult subjects that nobody wants to hear about. And it also, when done correctly, is a very personal way to talk about really big issues. So Noma and I have the ability to take these really big issues that people think are extremely complicated and find that kernel in it. 
whether it's like you proposing to MBS or like, you know, a rumor floating around that Sharuk Khan, the biggest actor in India was in love with me. It's the idea that you take something that is so difficult that people are sick of hearing about that they just don't want to listen to and you make it entertaining and you make it funny and you make it accessible and you get a whole new audience that never knew anything whatsoever about what you're talking about to listen. But I still think that comedy has to be funny first. I think that if you go out trying to message and change the world, that it's dangerous. I think you have to go out and be like, be entertaining, be funny first, make sure they laugh, do your job. And if while you're doing that, you're able to change some minds, if while you're doing that, you're able to dissipate some hate, then you've taken it to a whole nother level. And I also think, you know, it's always, always Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. And when I'm holding the mic and nobody else is, the audience is captive, quote unquote, um, I have the responsibility to use my words for good. So even though I never go out to message, I also made, you know, a choice in 2010 to stop using slurs, to stop using misogyny, to stop, you know, using homophobic or transphobic language. Because I grew up listening to comics like Eddie Murphy and like, you know, Richard Pryor and Andrew Dice Clay and, and people used slurs and people used misogyny and people slut shamed. And I did that too, because as a woman comic in America, you're up against men. And when a woman walks out on stage, the energy in the room literally drops because the assumption is we're not as funny. That's what was so fun about trailblazing in like Palestine and Jordan, because I was the first one out. So then when the men came out after me, they were like, oh, guys trying to be funny. That's a girl thing. But in the States, it's really a guy thing. And I had to come out knowing that I was going to use my power to do good while still being funny, but also knowing that in the United States of America, this is absolutely no exaggeration. Being vocally Palestinian is a detriment to Hollywood career, not because Jews control Hollywood. Um, that is not why. It is because there is such a misperception of what it means to be Palestinian. So when I lead off and I say, I'm Palestinian, I'm Muslim, they literally hear I'm ISIS, I'm violent, I'm a terrorist. And they don't understand why I'm saying that. I have had shows vocally tell my agents, we cannot have her on because she's anti-Semitic. And as I say here with two women that I call friends, you know, I don't want to be like, I have a black friend, her name is Noam. But like, I'm, I'm an equality junkie. Like everything I talk about is equality, regardless of race, gender, you know, economic class, who you love. I, I'm truly for equality. But the assumption is that when I talk about Palestine, when I talk about human rights, when I talk about equality, when I talk about children needing access to an equal accessible education, the assumption is you cannot be pro-Palestinian without being anti-Semitic. So I have taken some extremely, extremely heavy hits in my career by insisting on being vocally um, pro-equality. Misun, one point that you raised, which I know is very true, is that 
when you're up on stage, whatever the audience is, you're bringing your full self. So you are Palestinian, you are Muslim, you are disabled. And you have, I mean, you and I have known each other for almost 20 years now, and your reach has expanded greatly from being someone who was on stage in a post 9-11 environment when we were all kind of just fighting to like keep our civil liberties intact as a community. You know, when, when you're up on stage, particularly not in front of an Arab American audience, do you feel like there's anything off limits? Do you feel no. like, how, how, do, how do you change your kind of approach towards your comedy, specifically about Palestinian rights, um, depending on the audience? So I, I, I love that you know me so well. And one of my, my true character flaws is like this webinar right now, I showed up like two minutes before it started. I don't prepare, I don't practice, I don't do my homework. So I get on stage and I talk about whatever I wanna talk about that day. Might be that the Mets won a game, might be Britney Spears lacking civil rights, might be that I was flying on a plane and I was gonna hit a baby and blame it on my cerebral palsy. I do not change my routine depending on my audience unless I'm being specifically paid to do so. So I'm also a comedy mercenary and sometimes corporate pays me a lot of money. And then I'll talk about whatever they want me to talk about. Whatever they want me to talk about. The only thing they can't pay me to do is be pro-Zionist. But other than that, they can pretty much pay me um, to do anything. Because again, I believe that my comedy is universal. When I sit on stage, I talk to my audience like they're my friends. And if it's about, I have a crush on this guy on the BBC and he does not crush me back. Or if it's about like, I just went on set on General Hospital the first time, I wanna share this really exciting thing. Or if it's about like, hey, Israel guy, new president, and you're not gonna believe this, he's actually worse than the last one. You know, so I talk about politics, I talk about pop culture. And the only thing that's honestly off limits to me on stage is hate speech. It's the only thing I won't do. So when people say all is fair in comedy, I draw the line at hate speech. I'm very, very serious about that because in the beginning of my career, as I said, like one of my legendary jokes was making fun of um, pedophilia. And this woman came up on stage after I was done and she said, you know, I came out with my friends and it was actually an Arab joke. I used to say, uh, the men are 30, the women are 14 because one man's destiny is another man's crime. And this woman came on stage and said to me, you know, I came to laugh tonight and you invoked the darkest, worst memory of my life. And in that moment, I was like, I want to do that. I want to make people laugh. So will I joke about cancer and dead babies? Hell yeah, I'll joke about cancer and dead babies. But I will not use hate speech. I will not joke about hate. I will not invoke slurs or misogyny or homophobia or transphobia. That's the only thing that's off limits. So I never go into a room and change the intro from Palestinian Muslim who's disabled, divorced and living in New Jersey to Arab Muslim, just so that the audience doesn't get offended, never. Sometimes I say, if I'm offending my audience, it's because you're a bad person and I wanna offend you. <laughs> No, and what about you? I mean, not just what's off, you know, do you consider anything off limits? But I mean, a lot of your jokes, um, a lot of your comedy is, is probably not what 
uh, the audience is expecting from an Israeli comedian. Um, so, you know, how have, what's the response been like when you are including Palestinian rights and, you know, your own story into your comedy? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because, I mean, when COVID started, my heart was broken because I went from, you know, living, I was trying to, you know, finish my show in the U.S. and perform it there. The experience from, for me, performing in the United States and then a pandemic stopping it and having to come back home and deal with this place. I'm one of the only local comedians that are even speaking about this topic. Israeli comedians, they love just avoiding it and they go into, I, I in, on every show that I have here, every comedy night here, I know I go to that comedy night. Sorry, the ambulance is there. <laughs> I go to the comedy night knowing that I am going to be a controversy. I'm, I, I'm going to, you know, know that um, uh, some people- Is that true regardless of audience? Like both in Israel, but also when you said you, you've done comedy in Palestine. Yeah, so it's like so 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 what so what I'm so what I'm bringing is not I mean I have Tinder jokes and I have jokes that I love doing about like getting married and the fact that I'm 34 and single and my Persian Jewish grandma told me that I can marry a non-Jew after the age of 30. I can set you up. Yeah. I can set you up, but marriage is a racket that should be avoided at all costs and you're better off being single. Go ahead, Noam. Yeah, so it's like so I so I go to a comedy night and like there are ten male uh, uh, male comedians before me like in a heavy Israeli accent. So my wife uh, took me to the supermarket and and then I come on stage and I'm telling jokes about like growing up bilingual <laughs> with uh, you know with Palestinians. So it's almost like the way that that. Uh, the way that uh, uh, the type of comedy that I like to do was celebrated in the in the United States because people are more into politics of identity and interesting immigrant stories and universal stories from around. It's the exact opposite here. I I my daily struggle here performing here is not to lower my standards, to keep up with what I'm doing, even here when you are expected to do less. Like people just want, can you tell us a joke about seeing your cousin on Tinder? And I'm like, I like this joke, it's funny, but I really want to tell you something else now. And so it's always this struggle between bringing something more to the table or just, you know, giving the audience this like, you know, yeah. So that's the, that's the struggle that I find here. Just to, to follow up on that with, with both of you, and I, I've seen, well, I saw the, Noam, I saw your, the, the video, the, the film um, that Al Jazeera produced and Maysoon, I've seen you, in, I've seen you perform so many times, starting with, I think when Rebecca took me to see you in the Axis of Evil comedy tour. Oh, wow. So awesome that it was called the Axis of Evil comedy. <laughs> Um, but what's striking with both of you, for me, 
is watching an audience. And I don't know if that audience is people who already know a lot about the conflict or in, in the movie, there's a, there's a footage of, of you know, I'm addressing a Jewish American audience. And it, it, it seems sometimes that you use your jokes to draw people in to almost make them acknowledge things they wouldn't want to acknowledge. Um, you know, Mason, your joke about, you know, catching a husband in Gaza because there's nowhere to run. You're, you know, the laughing about that is also acknowledging that it's true, that you're recognizing that people are locked in. And Noam, in the movie, I don't want to give away too much about the movie, but you make a joke, you're talking to a Jewish audience and you joke about your Palestinian neighbor in, in Wata Salam and there's a fire and they don't want to leave their house because they're afraid they won't be allowed to come back. And you see an audience of Jewish Americans laughing. Like, but they're laughing. They're also laughing with the knowledge that yes, Palestinians have never been allowed to return. It's a really powerful moment. And I, I want to ask, you know, both of you and, and Maysoon, why don't you go first here, to talk about, you know, how you decide what you're going to put in into your comedy about, and again, focusing on Palestinian rights, um, you know, how it dovetails with, you know, you said your, your joke about Gaza was because there was bombing going on, but, you know, Part of it, every time I've watched you, Maysoon, I've learned something. I've learned something about the experience of being Palestinian American or seeing what's happening in Palestine from here. How do you, how do you make decisions about how to, to sort of weave that into your comedy? And, and are you thinking about that, you know, sort of what the broader education process is for the world as you do it? Because that's, that's a heavy burden. It's a heavy responsibility you're taking on, but it, it's, it's enormous power. Yeah, so, you know, kind of as I mentioned before, I'm just not a planner. So I don't put much thought into it, but being Palestinian is such an inherent part of who I am. I was born and raised as a Palestinian person under conflict. I was born and raised watching Palestinians never have equal rights. I was born and raised being exposed to extreme, extreme violence. You know, I'm trying to get a seat um, on The View as a co-host right now. And one of my selling points is I'm the only one that has ever been shot at in a war zone. Like none of the other hosts have ever been shot at in a war zone. And I have, and I've lived under curfew and I've experienced, you know, the utter humiliation of being dehumanized by, um, by a government and an army that views themselves as supremacists. And I think the lens that I have always approached Palestine from is twofold. One, it's personal. This is my story. These are my people. These are my family. I'm the person who is being denied equal rights. I'm the person that they shoot out. I'm the person who, if I have a baby and Noam has a baby, and we literally have it in the same hospital in Jerusalem, her baby will have more rights than mine does immediately, like on the spot. So I try to break it down in a way that they can eat it, right? Because the idea of children here, like no child should be bombed. And they're like, blame the parents. And then you're like, two babies are born in the exact same hospital to two cool chicks, the cool chicks that you're looking at right now. And those babies have completely different rights depending on who their mom is. That's something that parents in the audience can comprehend. That's something that people in the audience are like, oh, snap. So I extend that to trying to use very accessible American things to compare the Palestinian-Israeli conflict to. I shun words like occupation. Occupation in English means job. That's a good thing in a market that's like rife with unemployment. So instead, you know, I say things like equality. 
I say things like brutality. I say things like right to worship or right to life. I remind people that evangelicals in America want Jews in Israel to die. So that this is like the most unholy alliance in the Holy Land. And I remind them that Palestinian Christians exist because I'm a Christian loving Muslim. But I tell jokes about Christmas. I film my web series in Palestine at Christmas because I love Christmas, not because I'm like, this is a good way to humanize people and remind them that they like Christians. I'm like, oh, I'm off and there's going to be lights and they're going to sparkle and people will give me gifts. I'm going to Palestine for Christmas. So I wish I had like a better strategy, but I really don't. But the kernel is humanize and make it relatable. Stay away from the things that, you know, one of the simple jokes I say on stage is like, I get that you think that God promised you this, but I'm reading a totally different book. Like I'm in a whole different book. You're like DC, I'm Marvel. So like none of this applies to me. And when you say that to people, they're like, oh shit, yeah. She doesn't actually believe what the other people believe, but we can all believe that equal rights is a thing. And that applies to disabled people too. And I'm talking about like, disability, a DC court just allowed the electric shocking of disabled children. And so instead of making it like something so inaccessible, I'm like, dude, can you imagine if I could shock you? Now imagine it's four times stronger than a taser. I make it about you. I make it about shocking you because talking about shocking some random kid doesn't resonate. Same thing with Palestinians and Israelis. Like when I talk about everyone's bragging about Israel's COVID rates, but they're ignoring the fact that Palestinians and Israelis are banging, they're having sex and the Palestinians are not vaccinated. You can't separate these people. So your COVID numbers are bunk because you're in denial of the fact that these people live on top of each other, that not everyone is in an open air prison like Gaza, that we're actually not separated, that we are the workforce. I use things that people can relate to because the situation has been framed as complicated. It's so complicated, so complicated. I think comedy is the easiest way to really simplify it. It's not complicated. Certain people have rights because they were born one faith. Other people have no rights because they were born another faith. That is the only separation. That's the only conflict. And I think comedy is the best way to simplify it. And to also, like Rebecca said, make people think about their own biases. Because when you hear people laughing at something you believe, it makes you go, oh no. <laughs> Do I believe something ridiculous? Oh, this is bad. Whereas if I go up to you and I say, you're ridiculous, you're bad, what you believe is wrong, you're gonna be like, no, what I believe is right. And you're gonna fight back in a way that you don't when I get you to laugh at your own biases. It's really all about making money. I actually don't give a hoot about peace. <laughs> None of us believe that, but the rest of us <laughs> all hold No one would have you. I mean, God forbid, if we have peace soon, my, my comedy career is over. So we need to just, you know, be, continue to be very, very, to be very, very good at 
what we're doing right now. No, I need you to sacrifice your career for the greater good. <laughs> and in exchange, I promise to create like a real housewives conflict between you and I, where okay. we fight over Amber. This, <laughs> please, you can have her. <laughs> the director of the Al Jazeera film that they did with Noam, and she's fabulous as well. Go on. Fabulous, and she's uh, she she continues to film, and she's also working with Maisun. So we're all connected. We're all inseparable, uh, un if you can say that. But so when I was when when COVID started, <laughs> sorry, I, I keep going back to that point. I was uh, and I made my way back home from the U.S. I was in the middle of this like dream year at Harvard doing this uh, one woman comedy show that I wanted to tour with. And I was, I was, uh, when everything stopped, I, I, I actually got COVID on the way home. My son, I got sick with COVID in March, 2020. And wow. then I, I found myself, so they didn't let me go home. I went to the hospital. I had breathing problems. It was horrible. But then they put me in a, in a Corona hotel in Jerusalem. And I was stuck in a Corona hotel with a bunch of sick people from all walks of like, like there were Palestinians, Jews, ultra Orthodox settlers, Bedouins from the South, Palestinians from the North, everyone, everyone on top of each other, sick with COVID. We were the only people during the pandemic, in the beginning of the pandemic, that we're gathering and partying. And, <laughs> and I was so, I had no role. Like people were just getting the same meals, getting the same sheets, getting the same towels from the hotel and we were being treated equally and there were no problems. It's like I had to stage fights in the lobby <laughs> so that people, so that I can identify what, you know, where I am. And I was giving shows and because the, you know, the, the energy was so good, they, you know, and so it really challenged this role that I think that I have that actually, my son, I like that you said before that it's actually quite dangerous to think that you have a role in comedy, but I use my privilege as an Israeli Jew knowing that I can say things that Palestinian comedians get into a lot of trouble saying. I can rip the shit out of my, sorry, of my government with jokes, joke about normalization with like really strong dictators in the Gulf, uh, talk bad, like tell Holocaust jokes, tell like all these jokes that other comedians would get into a lot of trouble saying them. But I am Noam, I use my privilege as a Noam Schuster to say the things that other people can't on stage. And that's a really big part of, of, of how I decide what goes into my act. Because if I go on stage and I see that the audience is mixed, that there are, let's say, liberal Jews and Palestinians in the audience, I will start speaking in Arabic so that these liberal Jews will not understand some of my jokes and I can stop and tell them, oh, you don't understand. This is how people around you, this is how people around go learn Arabic or, you know, we are in the Middle East. There is a very, very small minority like where this island of, uh, you know, Jewish Israelis who don't speak Arabic in the middle of the Middle East, maybe we should like change that. <laughs> and, and so I, I, 
it's the only outlet where I can deal in a funny way in a, uh, you know, like my son says, in a way where people are less likely to want to kill me. Although I've been getting a lot of death threats. A lot of death threats. It's a big part of being a comic is getting death yeah. threats. But no, I definitely think that when you are a comedian and you can say things that others can't, you should. I think Noam knows this, that when I'm in Palestine, I drag the Palestinian authority. I literally refer to the dictator whose term is up known as Mahmoud Abbas as Abbas hole. And my sister represents Palestine at the United Nations and has begged me repeatedly to stop doing that. But because I know that Palestinians will get arrested for saying what I'm saying, I make sure to go on stage and say what they can't and be like, okay, come and drag, you know, the disabled funny mother Teresa off stage and let's see how that goes for you. So I do think that when we have the power to speak and other people don't, we have to. And I think that, yeah, I mean, no matter how much I don't want to plan, you know, if I have a big platform, like I'm going to be on the news or on the view or something, Palestine's the first word. Um, yeah. out of my mouth. But I want to hijack this because we only have 13 minutes left. Actually, I should never use words like hijack or explode. And I'm going to stop <laughs> doing that. Um, it's no fault because she said explosive. But I want to turn this over to... Um, to the Q&A because I wanna get people involved and there's so many questions. And I'm wondering if Ellen Siegel is my lawyer. So if you are my lawyer, can you just raise your hand? Cause that's my lawyer's name is Ellie Siegel. And I'm just wondering if that's her in the Q&A. But uh, could we do Q&A? Um, are there, so we've been, I think weaving these in as we go. If you see questions in the Q&A that we haven't, I'll be honest, most of the things in the Q&A are compliments to the two of you for being awesome. Um, oh, okay. There's fewer questions and more well done. We should have <laughs> a little more. Um, okay, then you can ask us the next question, but can it be shallow? Something Rebecca, like probably not having substance at all. It's, it's Rebecca. So, Maysoon, I mean, you mentioned this, but literally the first time I met Maysoon in 2003, one of the first things I learned uh, was that she was going to be on General Hospital. <laughs> and she was. And if there's anyone that I knew, even meeting her when we were just baby activists, it was that this woman is going to get herself on General Hospital. So what was that like after years of so just to piggyback what Rebecca said, my dream in life was to be on General Hospital since I was five. I became a professional comic at 22, and I literally made sure that every single interview I ever did, I mentioned General Hospital. So like after my TED Talk, I was on Queen Latifah, I mentioned General Hospital. My dad passed away. And I took a year off doing stand-up comedy. I wrote for the Daily Beast on Palestine. And I found a way to write an article comparing Yasser Arafat to Luke from General Hospital because both had supposedly been poisoned with plutonium. Like that's how hard I worked on it. And then literally 20 years to the day after my first stand-up comedy show, I got a call from General Hospital asking me to come on set. And they told me that they had written a character for me, Zara Amir, who is a lawyer, just like Rebecca is. So I have like a really good source to go to. And they invited me to the daytime Emmys a week before I would shoot my first scene. And when I walked into the daytime Emmy party, the executive producer was standing next to my two favorite actors. They opened the door, they looked at me and they said, 
welcome to General Hospital. And I have literally never had a dream like come true on that level before. But then when I got on set, it really exceeded my expectations. For those of you who don't know, General Hospital is the longest running daytime soap opera on television. It's on TV every day. And on soap operas, there are no disabled people. People on soap operas are disabled for like one week and they're healed by love. And like love couldn't heal me. So I didn't know what they were even gonna do with me. And what was so cool was they did not write my character as disabled. My character's a lawyer. She limps into the courtroom. There's no apologies for the fact that she can't rise when they say, all right, she stays sitting. No one makes a big deal. We made no apologies for it. She can't be healed by love, but they've created this like sexy shark lawyer with a nice, like strong Arabic name, Zara Amir, and like a shady past. And the fact that she's disabled is completely irrelevant. And I think that's important because disabled people are 20% of the population and we're nowhere to be seen visibly on TV. And when we are, we're always charity, we're always others, we're always unlovable. And I think just having disabled people exist like we do in real life with no apologies is so important. And that's what General Hospital did. Unfortunately, I haven't been on screen for a year and a half. So I will be triumphantly returning in the fall because I was stuck on the East Coast General Hospital films on the West Coast and they weren't able to have any East Coast actors come out to the West Coast due to COVID. So I'm finally going back um, in the fall and I'm really excited um, to watch Zara Amir Free Palestine on General Hospital. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to ask Noam now the somewhat shallow question, which is, um, what is it like having someone follow you around, be be up in your business constantly with a camera? And I'm guessing at the COVID hospital, at the COVID hotel, you were filming yourself as well. Um, that's got to be weird. And and I said, I, I've got to assume that you learned some things along the way, like things you don't want to ever have to do again or do. But I'd be interested in hearing about that. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of things. Uh, first of all, Amber, the director, I, I've known her from her previous film. She, her previous film is called Speed Sisters. You should check it out. Uh, all, all our listeners should check it out. Uh, she documented Palestinian uh, female car ra race drivers in the West Bank. It's an incredible film. And I was, I knew her from back then when she lived in Palestine. And when I was in the United States, um, we met in the fall of 2009, like four months before COVID, and we talked and we, we you know, we were catching up and stuff. And after this uh, meeting, she grabbed the camera and she just followed me to Harvard. And she started documenting these, all these crazy things that, you know, that have been happening. And at the time when she started, I was really happy because I felt like, you know, I mean, the, we didn't know a pandemic is on its way. And so she was filming me doing, I was uh, opening for Maz Jubrani, you know, in front of like Iranian, uh, 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 in front of the Iranian audience. And uh, uh, Maz really has an amazing diverse audience in the United States. And a lot of his um, a lot of his um, audience is uh, you know Iranians and he's never put on stage like a, a Jew you know who has roots in Iran but has never actually been to Iran and like all this craziness it was just like 
a, a huge, everything was, it felt like a journey. And then boom, suddenly Amber can't film me and this whole thing is stopped. And I'm filming myself and I'm sick and I'm trapped in a hotel and all these things are happening and all these this political all these political things are happening and i'm going and i'm being forced to go back to like my activist self mixed with the comedy stuff because being here it's not this like comedy experience adventure that i had in the united states where i get to say what i want to americans here i get threats here there are there is more there is more uh you know there are more stakes to be made when i'm being vocal and very very critical and the audience here is much tougher with me it's different so when everything is going well for you you love being documented but when life hits you with a global pandemic and your racist people that you have to encounter and you don't know what your role is i'm like get the camera away from me, let me figure this out. And you don't realize that the whole process is that someone is filming you as you're trying to figure it out. That's a very hard thing to be in. You're allowing someone to film you at your lowest, at your sickest, at your most miserable. That was a big switch that I did. So when she's filming me, I'm like, get off, uh, don't film me. And then when she's not filming me, I'm like, Amber, I'm so interesting. Why are you not filming me? <laughs> So, a quick shout out to Mashabrani because yeah. Lara mentioned the first time she ever saw me was at Axis of Evil, and that was also with Mashabrani. So, my first professional tour yeah. with Dino Badala, Aaron Cater, and Mashabrani. So, he's he's a kingmaker. Yeah, Maz is just really the best. And I mean, I didn't imagine that I'll be, you know, opening for him at the Kennedy Center in front of three, uh, 3,500 people. My God, it was it was crazy. And, you know, these are the things that when I step out of the bubble that is Israel and the mindset that narrows you down to just represent very, very small things and you get out to the world to say bigger things in front of bigger audiences, then, you know, performing with Maz for me was really fulfilling. A, it, it was really a dream coming true because here when I say I have Iranian roots, people shut me up. They say, no, you're Israeli. And I'm like, no, look at my skin color. Look at the food that my mom is serving on the table. I want to find out what it is. Performing with Maz has allowed me to, to you know, express it in a, in a wide identity sense. Uh, that's one thing. I mean, it's not connected to the question that you asked me, but I'll say this one last thing about being documented. I learned also that filmmakers and my son, I'm sure that you know this, they're the worst kind. Like as soon as they get what they want, they forget about you. They're gone. Yeah, yeah. They're like, they're like that hot guy that just leaves you. I have a question. Outside of Palestine, what was your favorite place to perform? Wow, my favorite place. I performed in Rwanda, in East Africa wow. comedy festival. That was amazing. That Mine was, amazing. was Beirut. I've never ever done a, had more fun than performing in Beirut. They are wow. like truly the partiest people of, of the Middle East and the whole entire world. But and you Rwanda, have a few jokes about us. What? And you have a few jokes about us. Were you in Beirut when I did the Beirut shows? No. Oh my gosh. Unfortunately not. It was exquisite. And they know how to party after a show too. In a very halal way. In a very halal. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're
we're getting to the end of this, I, I will say <laughs> that based on the Q and A's that we've seen, which are mostly words of thank you, you guys are awesome. Um, I would say the biggest takeaway for me from this is we really need you both performing um, wherever you perform in the world. And um, if you could perform in the United States where we can see you, that would be great, maybe together. Um, yeah, we need the double headline and Live Nation tour for sure. That yeah. would be awesome. There, there is absolutely an appetite. And, and I will say, and this is my, my last observation as someone who's worked on these issues for years, um, seeing, getting to see these issues through the lens of comedy is both, um, it's funny and, and refreshing, but it also, I mean, every time I see one of you, I learn something and it broadens my own views. And I think it is an incredibly powerful vehicle. Um, and I, I hope we have more of it and hope that we can bring more of it to the world. So I have one minute to wind this up because Maysoon has something at noon. So on, I behalf, another show. <laughs> on behalf of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, I want to thank Maysoon and Noam and Rebecca for what was a really fantastic and I, I found uplifting discussion. Um, and I wish we'd go on longer. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me and leading the conversation. What a joy. And check out our website, www.fmep.org for information about more awesome events that will be coming up soon. So thank you so much for having us. Um, I'm Maysoon.com, PayPal sign. -up.